Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. Evercast is the first real-time collaboration platform built for creatives by creatives with video conferencing and HD live streaming in one web-based platform. Stay tuned for a special offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hulfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, we're talking with Fred Thorval, editor of Oscar contender Promising Young Woman, which you can watch on demand now through Amazon Prime and others. I last talked to Fred when he edited the film Peppermint back in 2018. He also edited the films Taken, From Paris with Love, Safe, and The Gunman. Fred, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to have you on the show. We talked earlier for uh, Peppermint. Yeah, it was uh, like two years ago. Thank you very much for having me back. That was a great conversation. I'm sure this will be as well. Tell me a little bit about how you met the director and uh, landed this gig. I received that script and there was something very exciting in it. It's those kind of, of script that you are starting to read and you can't stop. You need to go on one go until the last page. And you have that world in front of you and you say, oh, wow, that's amazing what I'm reading. And on the side, you have a mood board, very detailed with everything you will see in the movie now. It's all the reference were there. It's She, she, she was very specific and precise. And same for the, for the music. She had a playlist of all the songs that she referred to in the uh, script. And it, it was fascinating to see how all the world she had in mind was there. We had an interview. It was more of a talk and I felt very at ease with her. And I think she was too, because very quickly at the end of the interview, she told me that let's uh, do it. And that was it. You said there was a mood board. You actually got that delivered to you with the script? Yes. What I found very clever from Emerald is that she sent the equivalent of the mood board to everybody in the crew before the first day of shoot. And I found very interesting that she wanted to invest people like that. And it was a very good way, I think, to do that. Do you think that maybe you're either her people or your people felt like it would be a, a good connection between the two of you because of Peppermint and that they're similar in some ways, or do you not think they're similar at all? I mean, they're definitely different in tone. I wouldn't say that it's because of Peppermint. I touched almost every type of genre that are in the movie. I did some horror movie. I did some thrillers. I did some author movies. I did some comedy. I'm trying to not have a, a label, even if everybody has a label, unfortunately. But I think that as an editor is able to cut every type of movies. So maybe that was something that helped her to, to choose me. But it was fun to actually use all the things I've learned on several projects and, and use it to help the movie and to sometimes counteract what you can do usually with those elements. I like the idea of working in the U.S. after starting in France because it's having a foot in two different types of culture. And I like the idea of taking from both and blending and using things that you usually not use for this or that. And at the end of the day, the mix is working. How different do you think those worlds are? The films you've cut in France and the films you've cut in the U.S., how are those projects different? I don't think things are different. What was interesting is I was doing Taken, but at the same time, I was doing Lullaby for Pie, which was a first movie, very author movie. I am trying all the time to not have preconceived ideas. I'm trying to 
feel the flow of the dailies, feel the flow of what I'm emotionally reacting to. I've never heard, for example, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3 before arriving in the US. This is something that when I was working in France, maybe the, the writers were using that, but in the cutting room, we are not talking about that. My feelings are, are my meter in a way. It is my only way to know if I feel good with the performance I see, with the pace, with the flow I see on screen. I'm referring a lot to my guts in a way. You mentioned some of the genres that you've cut in the past, and this is definitely a film that kind of jumps inside the film between kind of genres or tones. There's kind of a horror feel to it. There's a rom-com feel to it. There's a psychological thriller feel to it. Did you feel like you needed to be in and out of a specific tone? How did that work? All the tone, all the, the genre are baked in the script. In a way, it was very clear that this portion, like let's talk about the medicine scene, for example, with Addison Brie, what you have usually in a thriller. The horror movie will be mostly um, at the very beginning with Adam Brody, where she stands up after opening her eyes and, and you have the stings when she opens her eyes or the, the music that is creeping in and very unsettling, like you would have in a, in a horror movie. But all that was very clearly set up in the movie. For me, one of the most important things was that we needed from the very beginning of the movie to connect with her. And this was the only way, I think, to having the, the tonal shifts working as seamless as possible. And so if the audience is very close to her, hopefully they will feel the same emotions as she's feeling at the same time. And in a way, she will guide them in the flow of the movie. The music cues that she she was referring in the script and in that playlist, a lot of them are in the movie at the end of the day, like the uh, Toxic. Toxic was twice in, in the playlist. Uh, there was the, uh, the, the Paris Hilton, the, the Wagner, the King and I. All those songs or, or music cues were very important to connect with uh, Cassie because every time you hear one of those songs, it reflects the state of mind where Cassie is either the nice moments or the more periodic moments when she's like freaking out with what happened with the Dean or what, what happened with the car crashing. Uh, th those kind of moments are very connected to the music. And I think that movie wouldn't be the same at all if we didn't have those musics. We were super lucky to have such a, a stellar performance from Carrie Mulligan. I remember when I was seeing the dailies and it was like those kind of performance where you, you can just focus on the details from one take to another and you can find your way in the cutting room very easily because she is spot on all the time. That, that was an amazing thing. You have all the cast around her and especially Bo Burnham that is crucial to make her character be who she is. And you couldn't have all the rom-com or the comedy side if the uh, chemistry between Carrie and Bo wasn't there since the first day. One thing that was funny for me, the first day of shoot, I went to take a coffee on, on Melrose, which I'm not doing most of the time. And I was about to go to the cutting room, take my bus, and I see a shoot on the side. And, and I think, oh, it's, it's funny because we are starting today. And, it, and I look more closely and, and I see on the chair, promising young woman. And I'm like, come I, on, I, I don't you. believe and, it. And I didn't, I, I never uh, look at the location and I rarely go to that coffee shop. And so I see that and I start to, 
talk with people and nobody even knows my face. And I see the person who seems to be the script. I start to talk with Renetta mm -hmm. yeah. and the sound mixer was, was there too. And we start to talk and suddenly you have Emerald arriving and, oh, Fred, come. And you meet with everybody <laughs> and you suddenly have a chance to be with a DP and you meet the production designer and people you don't see all the time, especially at the very beginning. And it was very interesting for me to see the Madison scene, which is completely different from the rest of the movie because it's the very serious thriller type scene. And... I remember I was like, oh, she had her, her straight hair. And two days later, I received the dailies from, I think it was a coffee shop, and she was completely different. And I started to see what Emerald had in mind visually. I think it was great to feel that all those elements helped us tremendously in the cutting room put together the world she, she had in mind. Another thing that I was thinking about with that introduction, because I think that's the first place that were introduced those Roman numerals, was that in the script or was that added later? No, actually, this is uh, something she brought up in the cutting room. What I really enjoyed with her is that I was able to do what I love to do is, is a ping pong thing where I was taking a chance on the first cut. I was trying something and she was looking at it. And even if it was not what she had in mind, she was looking at it and it was giving her ideas. And so we started a back and forth, like going back to the original idea. What would you do that? And at the end, arrived to something that was close, but slightly different. And I think all the, the way we worked on all the movie was like that. She was giving enough freedom to try things and to do something that was maybe not working, but it was helping to trigger something else and in the process to make it work. I was just talking to somebody else about the importance of failures and how just because you do a cut that doesn't get approved and the director doesn't like doesn't mean that doesn't move you further down the line. Exactly. And all the interest of our job, I think, is that process, being able to make mistakes and learn from them. I always have in mind that in any case, the movie will reject what it doesn't want. There's something very organic in the process that you can have, I think, with, with a movie. And if you're trying too hard to do something that doesn't fit the movie itself, it doesn't work and, and you can tell. And I think, yeah, it's very important to have time to not be exactly where the director wants you to be at the very beginning. I like personally to have during the dailies to have that time where I can try things, even if the director didn't think about this or that, because you don't have that communication much during the, the set process. So it's my playground. I'm trying stuff and we talk and exchange. And at the end of the day, it helps to figure out what is the best way to help his or her vision. I love a couple of really interesting pacing moments. Uh, Joe Walker describes these as being landscaped, where you pace up a section, sometimes with jump cuts, and that leads to or follows a longer, slower-paced moment. Uh, one of them is as Cassie is prepping to go to the bachelor party. There's a, a series of jump cuts, putting on makeup, and it's followed by a long walk to the cabin. It just works really well. That's exactly what happened in that scene. We were trying to find uh, the good balance between our preparation in the car and uh, the long walk that will take Cassie and the audience to the cabin and where you see the trees closing on, on her. When we were working on that moment, we needed to keep that connection with her 
when she's putting the lipstick, when she's adjusting a wig. But at the same time, we needed to keep the energy for the walk after that. So the uh, jump cuts were what felt the, the most natural to keep glimpse of the different actions, but, but keep the momentum of what she was doing. That, that's another great moment in the cunning room is that I, I remember Emerald was on a laptop and she's telling me, oh, Fred, we, we need to give that to Emily, my assistant, to import that in the Avid. So it's a version of Toxic. And I slow it down by um, twice. So it's 50% the length. And it gives those strings that kind of very unsettling and screechy feeling. I love that. Let's try that for the walk. She has those kind of amazing ideas to tweak things that most of the people don't have. And that's what I love with her world is that she sees things, uh, a very unique perspective on things. And so when we were cutting the scene, we tried, I think, to go fast on that preparation so we could really take the maximum time on that walk and let the, the shot leave before entering in the cabin and the party with the boys. We'll be back in a moment with more of my conversation with Fred Thorval. Today's episode of Art of the Cut is brought to you by Evercast. It's hard to beat the ease of sitting shoulder to shoulder with a director cutting in real time. The Evercast platform gives you that in-person experience no matter where you are. You can securely stream your Avid, Premiere, or any other NLE in 1080p with ultra-low latency. Plus, you can video chat, record, draw on the screen, and even make timestamp notes. No more uploading or downloading files, no more installing special hardware or sending notes back and forth. Evercast now offers flexible plans to make it accessible to more creatives. And in the month of March, Art of the Cut listeners can save $50 off their first subscription by heading to evercast.us slash AOTC. That's evercast, E-V-E-R-C-A-S-T dot U-S slash A-O-T-C. And now back to my conversation with Fred Thorival. Let's talk a little bit about uh, sound design. I really loved, uh, there's a great spot where she's in a car kind of with her head against the steering wheel and a guy pulls up behind her and he's yelling at her and his audio is muffled and sounds uh, intentionally distorted. Can we talk about that scene a little bit and uh, the sound design of that and why it was done? was interesting because we are going out of the Dean scene with that moment where for the first time in the movie, I think, Cassie explains to the audience what happened that night and how much the Dean Walker didn't take into account what the girl was saying. And so this is the first moment in the movie, I think, where Cassie, who tries to make all those protagonists aware of what happened because it, it, it's getting close to her, because at the end of the day, you know that the, the long, young girl were, that she she took was her daughter, the daughter of the dean. And so the, the dean is suddenly touched personally and it makes her react to what she years ago in a way accepted. So that's the first time I think in the movie uh, on that close-up on Cassie, we stay on her when you hear the dean say, saying, you're right. And she's leaving in a, in a nice, fun way, like a bit ironic. But the next scene is a scene where she's not feeling good. There's an internal tension that is starting to grow at the end of the previous scene. And, and we played actually with the design. You have a drone that is starting to grow that will uh, transform with her in the car with the Wagner music that is muffled like everything because she's in her world like reflecting to what just happened and the guy is is harassing her verbally but he's forced himself in in, in our world 
So that's why she's muffled at the beginning because we are always in her perspective. And when she's going out, the voice of the guy becomes uh, clear and normal. The music becomes clear as source music. And along the way, we, we are slowly transitioning in a full score that again reflects what she's doing and the state in her mind. So always very connected to sound design, the music, and that's why actually during the mix, the dialogue and music mixer, uh, Scott Weber and the sound supervisor, Frédéric Dubois, decided to split the thing so Fred was able to work with the uh, music cues because there was work to put it in as diegetic in the, the space of the movie all the time. Just before the fun Paris Hilton montage, there's another slower, sad montage. Can you talk about the value of slowing things down there and kind of opening that up? What is very interesting was to work with cues that for a lot of them were decided before even the shoot. And they were very important, like the Paris Hilton scene, like the the Wagner we just talked about. Those were part of what was necessary to the movie and you remove those cues, it's not the same movie at all. The Paris Hilton scene, for example, is is a moment where this is the love montage that will come. This is the moment where they just kissed and this is the future she could have with Ryan. So as the audience, you, you need to really buy that love so the, the contrast with what will happen after that is even stronger. Basically, there were two things in that moment that we needed to deal with. How to arrive to that song and how to make sure that we had enough before to earn that moment. We needed to have the connection between them existing, but we were not able to like do what you traditionally do, like continue on the same flow. Because for now, we had all the elements, but we were missing two things, the, the transition to the kiss and the transition to the pharmacy. So we looked into all the scenes we didn't use, all the elements that we could repurpose, and we've created that moment where she's lonely and sad, and it was giving us enough time for Ryan to come back in the coffee shop and be able to, to kiss her. Having that time helped us to, to arrive to that kiss and to finish that moment. And this helped us to transition to, to the scene after and to enter in the Paris Hilton song. If we didn't have that, we were not able to have the song and we were not able to completely earn that moment. Another thing that I'm really interested in is the use of close-ups. And this movie is played very wide for a lot of it. Not, not unusually wide, but just a lot of it's wide and you reserve the close-ups for big moments like I don't, I'm not going to give away what it is but when she finds out about the video recording that's a big that's a big close-up we were keeping the close-up for very important moment like the first time she is back from uh, Al Monroe this is where it's so important to have an actress like Carrie Mulligan because she gives so much that you can stay and you can stay on her and it, you want to stay on her. At that moment, I think we are switching in a more blurry sound, like more muffled, because what is important is just her and her reaction on things. So talk to me a little bit about the, there's a the montage at the bachelor party. It does not happen in real time. It does not happen in straight time. Like there's, uh, right, there's 
it's not a continuous time, the montage. You remember that? Maybe not. Um, well, because she's, she, uh, I don't want to go into this too much, but I'll, I can cut out my answer. Um, the montage has her pouring the, the vodka in all the guys' mouths and all the close-ups of all that stuff. But then it also cuts to her, like, pulling her either chewing gum or her latex gloves and also shows her kind of stripping. And none of that's in real time, right? Because she's, she's pouring the alcohol in the guy's mouth. So that would either happen before or after. You can imagine that while she's pouring, this is the start of her show as a stripper. And when we come back to the real time, she's putting back her clothes. So it's a good way to show the core of the movie, that the, the reactions from the guys and the interactions between those guys and women. And I, I found very clever the way she's decided to play that with the very close-up slow motion and having just specific moments of her doing a strip but you don't see anything and that's not the point uh, and, and it's, it's good actually to have a movie for the relations between men and women and uh, you don't have nudity you don't have anything it's, everything is suggested um, and that's important because that's not the point. The bachelor scene kind of harkens back to the very beginning, the credit sequence, the slow motion close-ups of guys. It's about guys dancing and being lewd. And I love the subversion that she's adding to everything in that movie to serve one idea. It's a very important theme, and she's using a very unusual way to tell a story. But... It's strong because of that. You mentioned uh, music cue for The King and I. Is that when, right after she sees the recording and she goes out in the park? No, that is from The Night of the Hunter. Early on, that's what the movie that the parents are watching. Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. Emotionally, it was very connected again to her. I wanted to talk to you about that, uh, that scene uh, when she's in the park. She's kind of, she can't believe what she's just seen or heard. It seemed like the music, it was score underneath with a totally different piece of singing above. Was that actually one track of music? It's um, a song that is in the Night of the Hunter and she's devastating at that point. And I remember we, we tried different cues and and at one point we add that song. There's, there's a quality to it that is very unusual, but that is very touching and talks to the heart. I mean, she just lost the, the guy she was thinking she was loving, the guy that was kind of putting her back into real life and everything is collapsing suddenly. So I think that song with that quality makes you connected to a pain. It, it's something that happened in the process. It's a kind of magic. Now, maybe I'm a bit mystical, but there's something that is not always coming from a thought process that is rigid that you had at the very beginning. No, no, it's something that evolves, that is coming, that you bring something in. And that's the ping pong we're talking about as well. It's just all those influence and, and having some uh, nice, almost miracle accidents, like you find that piece or that piece and suddenly it becomes something that works, that clicks. That's what happened with that scene, I think. It was the perfect haunting uh, emotional quality for that scene but it didn't make head sense it, it was like oh it was an, it certainly wasn't on the nose but it was very emotionally on point she was all the time looking for something that was working for her whatever it is it works it's not in the script it's not what we planned 
but it works. And I loved how she was in the cutting room, very organically reacting to the material and to the flow of it. She wrote every single word in that script. And she's, she's a writer too. So she's very connected to the words, but she was never attached to them. That makes a big difference with some situations I've seen in the past where you had a writer that was so attached to his own world that he was not seeing that he was losing so many things around because of that. It was completely the opposite with her. Hey, I've kept you for quite a while, but I was wondering if there's any of the videos um, that I, I emailed you. I don't know whether you saw any of those links. Um, can you talk to me about any of those scenes? Are there any of them worth discussing? The dinner scene is hilarious. So this is the meeting with the parents. And that has an amazing quality of comedy and of improv. And when they were shooting the scene, uh, we had to cut, unfortunately, so much on a movie that was shot in 23 days with one camera. So it was fast. And when you are in one camera, when there's improv, you're not, you know, in the usual comedy style when you have the two cameras on the two protagonists. And so you can play from one to the other using the other camera. This time we didn't have that. So Emily did a brilliant job to try to find in the pharmacy scene the, the best moments at trying to find some connections. And she built a long version. And from that we, we played with, but Jennifer Coolidge in that scene is amazing. And the way they were all the actor reacting one to the other. Mm -hmm. Played a lot on two shots, if I remember. Like it was usually one side of the whole side of the table. It was either the dad and the mom or it was Carrie and Bo. Yeah, exactly. We had that and we had the, the wide shot profile of everybody. But it was good because we were able to have a full range of the room, which is one of the elements at the very beginning. Every time I see that scene, I can't help myself thinking of the look of Alison Brie when she's walking inside the living room. And she's almost like physically, you can see her like, where am I? <laughs> Fred, thank you so much for such an enlightening discussion. I really appreciate your time today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I, I love to talk about that movie. So <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you talking to us, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk on your next film, hopefully. Hopefully. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Fred Thorobal. Also, thanks to Dylan Giovanetto, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend. Thank you.